All right, everyone. Thank you for joining Heal Thyself, for supporting the show as always. Welcome back to another week. We have a very special show, a special format today. We ain't going to do a knowledge bomb. We ain't going to do a product review. We're going to jump into this incredible interview with Zach Bush. Um, I know I've listened to so much of his work over time. He's been one of my favorite uh, doctors to look up to. And I really think that he has a strong hold of what health is and what healing is. And I'm talking about long-term massive healing. And he, more than any doctor that I've seen out there, has seen the big picture. And the big picture meaning that we're not separate from each other and we're not separate from the environment. So the words that Zach puts together and the way he puts it is so integral to our understanding. So I can't stress enough to you to listen to this interview between him and I. It's going to be really something that is transcendent because it will give you an idea about not only you as an individual, you, your cellular health, but how you're connected to each other and how you're connected into the global health. So I'm really, really excited for you all to listen to this um, and just open your minds, open your hearts, open your ears and let the information flow through you. Feel the resonance. If you feel it and it's your truth, then listen to it. And if it's not, then just take it for what it is and maybe in time, open your heart more to it. But can't wait for it. So listen in and let's get to that special guest segment with Dr. Zach Bush. All right, what a pleasure it is. I have a guest here that I've been one and a half since last year, but we're finally here. We're going to have such an incredible conversation because... Dr. Zach Bush's real principles on health and changing uh, consciousness, basically, aligns so much with what I'm putting out there, too. So it's like synergy to the T, Dr. Zach Bush, and everything you're doing. I'm such a fan, and I love the work you're doing, uh, first and, and foremost. Thank you. you know, to be here with you. You got you to gotta lead with an open heart and gratitude, man, because I, I really think that you're changing the world more than a lot of us, and you know, a lot of us in the community look up to you because of what you're doing. Oh, I appreciate that, but on the other hand, I don't think I would be doing anything without the community, so I think it's... Uh, I, I'm the result of the community, if anything. So. Cool, yeah. And we and we we love community health, so we're going to get into that. But yeah. I, I want folks who uh, have never come across you to understand like where your passion grew in in the work you're doing. I know you started off in cancer, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just like me, same thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what was it about cancer that really like opened your eyes to going? All right, maybe this isn't the way we should treat it. Maybe this might be a new way to explore it. Or wow, look at these other possibilities. Yeah, when you're growing tumor cells and and then you know studying them under the microscope at, at nauseum, there's some really interesting you know phenomena that happen that don't match up with our clinical belief system or understanding of cancer as a whole. And some of those include just the simple feeding of cells can really screw with your your clinical trial of your chemotherapy. I was developing chemotherapies out of vitamin A compounds, and I found that if I didn't didn't very carefully regulate the amount of nutrient going into those cells, they could behave abnormally. They could kill themselves. They wouldn't survive to even see my chemotherapy. And so you almost have to stress the cell. You have to keep it in a very specific nutrient state to allow the cell even to get to the point where you can even study the toxicity or the efficacy of something like a chemotherapeutic. And so that was my first, you know, I I didn't recognize it for years. I was doing that for years. But it got to the point as I started studying nutrition through my clinical work that my basic science was already proving out that these these cancer cells were extremely prone to change 
uh, and they can lose their cancer characteristic or they can gain cancer characteristics based on their nutritional environment. And so that was kind of, I think, the backdrop that would become, you know, the opportunity for me to change my whole worldview. But one of the really potent things that you see happening under the, the microscope with these cells is the concept of isolation and loneliness. And when you start to realize that a cell can't really ever come to demonstrate all of the features of a cancer cell without isolation, it becomes really a profound model that we haven't been given in our medical training or in our general scientific things. We, we've come to understand cancer in the common narrative as a, a considerable accumulation of genetic injuries. Mm-hmm. And so we think of it as a genetic disorder of mm-hmm. the cell. And, you know, very small percent of cancer, less than 1%, is inheritable, you know, genetics. So most of it's an accumulation of environmental factors that are leading to those genetic breaks and an accumulation of genetic injury. But that's actually just a downstream effect of this more profound phenomenon of isolation. And so as we start to look at all diseases, chronic diseases as a whole category, we start to realize, wow, isolation is ultimately the fundamental mega, you know, or singular disease process that happens in our community is cellular isolation. Mm. When one cell can't talk to the next, you start to accumulate injury and you start to become dysfunctional as a complex organism, which should function as the symphony of 70 trillion cells of human origin with, you know, one and a half quadrillion bacteria with 14 quadrillion mitochondria. And these massive cell populations have to do a dance all the time Mm -hmm. and be in this kind of constant listening, sensing, just like dancing with a partner where you don't want to take the next step if unless you know where the music's at and where your partner's at and where their body's at and you're doing this dance. And, and that cellular health and vitality really comes with that constant listening, responding, reacting, all that happening at a quantum level, which means every millionth of a second, mm-hmm. every cell responding and listening and responding. And then you create isolation and you can no longer listen, you no longer hear, and the cells start to, to become desperate and they start to take on characteristics of survival versus health, survival mm. versus longevity. And it starts to make decisions that are very short-term decisions. You're no longer trying to do longevity. You're trying to just do damage control all the time. Mm. So those were some of the slippery slopes from moving from this belief that cancer was this disease attacking in us to this understanding that this is a disease that develops from a chronic isolation within our body, a chronic loneliness between ourselves. Wow. And and the cells being possibly a microcosm of the macrocosm, then would you say, how does that translate? How do our, in, in the most simplest terms, how do our cells get lonely? Yeah, it's a really important question because now, now as you ask that question, which took me, again, I was in, studying cancer cells for nearly, you know, six or eight years before I even asked that simple question of like, What's, what happens before you see, right. see isolation? Like, what are those upstream effects? And interestingly, it's a breakdown in the communication network. And so in this way, it's very similar to your cell phone or something like that, where you've got a computer with a, a transmitter, you can transceiver, you can receive and transmit information for short distances with a cell phone. If you're more than a few miles from your closest 4G tower or more than a few hundred meters from your closest 5G tower, you suddenly lose that connection. Mm-hmm. Nothing in the phone is broken. It's, it's a completely functional system, and all of its you know systems for updating and all that are still there, but it's become disconnected from the greater or- organism. And so you can no longer call grandma across the world. 
But interestingly, you know, it's is is the cell phone that always initiates the call. The cell phone tower has never called your grandma. Hmm. Your cell phone always has. So the initiation of the signal happens at the cellular level. But then to propagate that to other cells, you need the wireless communication network and you need a fiber optic connection as well. So you need both wired and wireless communication. Interestingly, the wired communication comes through something called gap junctions. Gap junctions are literal fiber optic cables and they are collected in in cable systems in the tens of thousands between each cell. And so you'll have tens of thousands of of little tiny tubes that uh, will transit from one cytoplasm or one interior of a cell to the next, which means information can travel from cell to cell without ever exiting the cellular environment. And that's really critical because the extracellular environment is radically different than the intracellular environment in especially regards to things like electrolytes, nutrients, osmolality, pH, all these things. And so that, that holy of holies of the inside of the cell has a continuum between cells via the gap junctions. And so you don't actually have an individual liver cell and you don't actually have an individual gut cell. You really have a gut barrier. You have this massive population of a billion gut cells that are laced together with gap junctions to form a single cellular intelligence. And in that hyperintelligence is where we really see the phenomenon of life occur. Like the the intelligence of a gut that can be different in its, you know, makeup from the cellular matrix of the back of your throat to the esophagus to the stomach to the small intestine to the colon. All of those are composed, the barriers composed of different types of epithelial cells. Some are tall and skinny, some are cuboidal, some are flat. Mm -hmm. And so you get this whole, but they all tie together through the gap junctions to create one hyper-intelligent barrier system. And when you start to isolate those cells by toxins that break the gap junctions, you start to get isolation. Mm. And some of these toxins are as old as man, including something like alcohol. As soon as we started distilling alcohol tens of thousands of years ago, we, we developed our first ability to create isolation at the cellular level. Why do people get drunk? In some ways, it's to isolate themselves away from their senses. They literally want to dull themselves down to decrease their stress level, to decrease their sense of the, the environment, their stressors, or the things that happen today. And so in a subtle way, we've been using toxins against our own self-identity, if you will, or against our own you know, hyper-intelligence to dumb ourselves down, to decrease the stress that we, we feel in a day. Wow. What, a, what an incredible, I mean, teaching because, um, shoot, in med school, if they te- teach about networks rather than just individual cells, how we would approach even disease, chronic diseases, and the interventions that we would make, it would be pretty incredible. It'd be amazing. Right. I mean, even if you think of, you know, what historically has been considered the number one chronic disease in Western civilizations, it's been cardiovascular disease. Cancer is now becoming more prevalent than cardiovascular disease, which is pretty stunning. But but back in the day, in the early 90s, when I was training, it was definitely heart disease was number one, and nobody, no, no other disease was even close. And of course, over the course of the 90s and the 2000s, di- diabetes emerges and autoimmune mm-hmm. diseases and everything else just be- goes rampant during that 20-year period. But back in the day, cardiovascular disease, you think, oh, we must understand that disease so well mm-hmm. because there's these little focal areas within the, the vessels that feed the heart muscle that can get clogged up with cholesterol. And so we developed this story of cholesterol deficiency. Right. But it turns out, of course, cholesterol has nothing to do with the advent of it. It's a downstream effect of something that happened upstream. Mm-hmm. And upstream was a failure of communication between cells and this isolation of the, the 
lining of those blood vessels when isolated from this complex ecosystem of macrophage, which are the sweeper cells and the immune mm -hmm. system's cleanup system, and HDL cholesterol, which sweeps all that cholesterol back out and returns it to the liver. And the liver then takes it and turns it into an anti-inflammatory called LDL cholesterol, which we're taught is the bad cholesterol. Right, right. But in fact, it's the primary anti-inflammatory. So when you start to see that orchestra of connected cell populations such that it's not just the vascular lining, but it's also vascular lining connected in the hyperintelligence so that it can know how to call in macrophage mm -hmm. to mobilize stem cells to do all this incredible regenerative effect. And so you're right. We would have we would start to realize that we should have never invented pulmonologists and renal doctors and cardio cardiologists. That was that was a mistake that we made in our educational format because it made us believe that there were single systems uh, that we were going to be experts in something. And I loved the field of endocrinology and so went into that with the idea, well, at least it's, it's organizing all of the organ systems was my mindset. Mm -hmm. But as I've gone on through the years, and especially as the last 10 years has shown us that the human cell is actually not at the center of human health, which is weird, it's actually the bacteria at the center of human health, I had to relearn the whole system of communication because I thought we were running on an endocrine communication network, mm -hmm. but we're actually running on something profoundly deeper, which is the wireless communication, which is this thing called redox chemistry, and the gap junction intelligence of light energy that moves between the cells. Mm. So you have fiber optic light energy, just like a fiber optic cable moves light in a digital form. You know, you can create a digital signal within the light sequence, light on, off as a switch. Creates a, an I.O. kind of phenomenon for your computer circuit board, for example. Mm. But in the same way at the cellular level, the light transiting there, less digital and much more as, as, as a, a full waveform, is creating coherent information streams. So light energy and then this bizarre chemistry of redox chemistry is really how bacteria talk to mitochondria, talk to human cells. And when you get that idea, no longer is it gut cells or vascular cells, or no longer is it vascular cells calling in stem cells, calling, it's actually vascular cells talking to bacteria, bacteria talking to mitochondria, mitochondria talking back to the vascular cells. Mm. And you get this beautiful ecosystem, you know, like coral reef kind of phenomenon, yeah. or the jungle of Costa Rica or something where yeah. the lizard is absolutely interacting with the plant, is absolutely interacting with the frog population and the butterflies. And it's this myriad of, of you know, beyond species, coherence and communication that gets really beautiful. And that's where I, my mindset of human health has gotten freed up from the human immune system or the human endocrine system or the human cardiovascular system to this concept of our physiology is literally the result of the beauty within us. There's just this, this desire of, of life to have coherent communication and co-creation between species. Mm, that's incredible. That's incredible to even think. And, and how many of us, not only as uh, physicians, but just the general population think that we are compartmentalized into these systems. And of course, it's reemphasized by all of these specialties that we, you know, oh, just go to your pulmonologist if you got something wrong with your breathing, you know? Oh, your hormones are off. I got a good endocrinologist up in Sherman Oaks, you know? The, the most powerful thing is to understand that not only are our cells, as you mentioned, communicating with each other, but now you're bringing in the concept of how the bacteria plays a role. Back, uh, we, we don't even have a course on, I, I wish we had a full year course on just bacteria, uh, everything about bacteria, inside out. Yeah. 
and how it reacts with our body. I mean, if our education was to match the reality that we now know, we'd have to do four years of human biology, and then we'd have to do 40,000 years on <laughs> microbiome study. That's how massive this database is. Like, it just dwarfs any human physiology. Yeah. So you're right. We, we need not just a year. We need to think about oh. steeping ourselves. The first year of medical school probably should actually be uh, a macrobiology study of forest systems, soil systems, air systems, and really understand cycles of carbon and oxygen in the greater environment. Because it turns out that's exactly the same thing that happens inside a single cell. It's exactly what happens in down as microscopic as a single mitochondria is mimicking exactly at the macro level what we see in the Amazon breathing into the air, absorbing the silica from that's blowing across the Atlantic Ocean mm -hmm. from West Africa. And so you get this dance of nutrients and oxygen water systems and then the, the, the dance of uh, macronutrients through the air systems and water systems. That's all happening inside the cell. And I think if we had that backdrop of here's the earth, here's the mechanisms and mechanics of an earth when it breathes, we would think much different about that asthma patient that shows up or patient who has a viral, you know, introduction to a pandemic and shows up with a failure to move oxygen through its body. We would never think about that as a viral problem. We would think about it as a, a failure of the system to do what it does. Mm -hmm. and, and so we would stop looking at our, we have this, this fundamental desire for a reductionist belief of, oh, there's a virus and there's a disease. They must be related, you know, and then we, we have to dissolve all of our, our other understanding all around it to just believe this one little narrative of cause and effect, when in fact it's correlation. The virus would never be in the system at any detectable level to cause any harm if the system was in its you know, vibration of all of those species interacting in the microbiome, the virome, and the fungi all doing its dance together. There would be no virus that could crop up as, as a weed-like kind of phenomenon if there wasn't more fundamental system breakdown. Yeah. So it's this desire for a reductionist answer of, of disease and effect. When in fact, we need to realize that all disease is a fundamental loss of health. And if we have health, it eliminates the, the likelihood of any disease. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's a virus or cancer or autoimmune disease or acne, from the benign to the, to the life-threatening, if there is health, which we can reduce down to a single concept, which is cell-cell communication. If there is cell-cell communication, we should have a resilience and a depth of regenerative capacity that would far outstrip any toxicity that even we've created in, in the insanity of like our chemical industry or anything else. Incredible, because that makes, I'm sure a lot of listeners right now, or viewers, are putting their minds at ease to understand that if they optimize that cell-cell communication, it can put them in such a robust state. Oh my gosh. It's so exciting. Like I, I get this goosebump effect when I go to a farm and sit, you know kneel down in in the soil that simply got taken care of for a year. You know, for forty years, chemical farming destroyed it, and there's no earthworms left. There's no natural aeration. It's like concrete. And then you just do the right thing for a year. After forty years of decimation and really hundreds of years of incorrect management, you suddenly do that one year right. It is unbelievable the speed of recovery. And wow. so it's so much cooler. And then you see the same thing happen in clinics. Somebody who's been, you know, subconsciously or constantly abusing the body for 40 years suddenly yeah. does the right thing for just three months and their body starts regenerating. Mm -hmm. And so this is really my new definition of grace, which is our fabric, our biology will heal faster than we can injure it.
logarithmically faster than we can, you know. And so the robustness that you and I can start to imagine would really change our, our concept as doctors. Mm-hmm. We're not no longer going to sweep in to go treat a disease. What if we swept in to create so much resilient biology, such depth of, of a reservoir of response systems within our patients that they'd be nearly bulletproof to mm-hmm. physiologic stress? You know, mm-hmm. it would be exciting. That's exciting for me. I'm ready to get back in the clinic now. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's, it's pretty, well, forget education. I'm getting back in the clinic. But yeah, no, I love, I love that idea and that thought. You, um, you talked about the the massive part that bacteria in our body has in that communication system, right? Because, you know, we learn about gap junctions in school and cell-to-cell communication, even through endocrinology. But the the role in that symphony, which seems to be like most of the orchestra, is the bacteria. Yeah. And you mentioned that they communicate how? By redox reactions? Yeah. So this is kind of the wireless version of the communication. So the gap junctions are very much a hard wiring. Okay. So the gap junctions are physical structures that tie one cytoplasmic structure to another. The redox signaling uh, that, that happens inside of a cell is produced primarily by these little bacteria that live inside of our cells that are called mitochondria. And these are a, a very ancient form of bacteria called archaea that at some point in their, in their you know, maturation of life absorbed a small methane-producing bacteria. And so you have a bacteria within a bacteria, Mm -hmm. and it allowed for a radical transformation in the way in which energy could be produced. Previous to the first mitochondria, and when I say mitochondria, it would include the plastids, which are the mitochondria within plant cells. Mm -hmm. They basically function the same way. They have slightly different structures, slightly different behaviors. There's more versions of plastids than there are mitochondria. Uh, the most famous one is chlorophyll uh, in the plant that takes light energy and turns mm-hmm. it into carbohydrate chains of energy. Um, and so th- it's a very cool way in which plastids and mitochondria within the human cells or, or mammals or animals in general, within those multicellular organisms, are able to take the biophotonic energy of sun, whether it be directly via chlorophyll or indirectly through nutrients that come in through the plant plastids, get uh, digested and transformed by the microbiome within the soils, returned up into the plants in different form, mm-hmm. transit into our bodies, our, the soil of our gut then takes that and digests that down into uh, smaller car- car- carbon molecules and then builds them back up into glucose and carbohydrates for our body. There's this dance of carbon that goes all the way through the system from sun to plant to soil, back into our soil, back into our cells, back into the mitochondria and release light energy. And so in the end, the whole story of life is taking the only thing that really hits the planet, which is solar energy, turn it into, to take that light force energy, turn it into nutrient that can then be broken back down into light energy. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole mechanism of the wired system. But to make sure that the gap junctions stay intact and all of the complex protein structures that go to make all of those scaffolds for the human cell and everything else, you have to have a wireless communication network. And so inside the cell, the mitochondria make this as little bacteria. Outside the cell, you need something more stable because, again, your extracellular environment is much different than the intracellular environment. A lot more toxicity out there, a lot more changes in uh, osmolality, the amount of solute, the amount of water, all of these things are in flux a lot more in the extracellular environment. So you need a much more stable wireless communication network, and that's made by the bacteria of soils and guts and everything else. It's important to realize now as we've started to tease out genomics over the last 10 years of human tissues that what we used to think of as, oh, the microbiome is in the gut and maybe on the skin, we now have had to come to terms with the fact that the microbiome has niches within every single organ system. 
meaning that the extracellular matrix around liver cells or neurons within your brain are actually nurse-mated, taken care of by a very unique set of microbiome, bacteria and fungi, yeasts even, that are existing in the cerebral spinal fluid around your brain, which is amazing. You and I were definitely taught that this was sterile, mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. and this is a, a very protected human space. To find out that there's a microbiome there is, is mind-boggling to me still. But then to find out that that microbiome is making a communication network, you know, in its healthy state so that cells can maintain communication around how do we keep the cellular matrix going so that we can build the right fiber optic cables, the gap junctions, the tight junctions, which are the gatekeepers from, you know, one compartment to the next. So how do we make tight junctions? How do we make gap junctions? How do we exude the right detox proteins, things like DPPO4 en enzymes? from the gut lining out into the gut milieu to, to break down potential toxins that could cause gut leak and gut injury, we can break all those down if there's enough wireless communication. The wireless communication in that space is not made by the mitochondria and within our cells, but are made by the microbiome outside of the cells. And that's what our lab has been working on for the last 10 years is really understanding what are those carbon molecules, how, you know, how are they extracted from nature or how are they produced by nature? How do we get that reintroduced to humans, which are now walking around with a very damaged microbiome and therefore have lost our wireless communication network? How do we plug humans back into that, that communication mm -hmm. network that would allow their gap junctions, tight junctions to rebuild so that they would have resilient barriers and resilient fiber optic communication between the systems to create that hyper-intelligence that we would define as health? Mm -hmm. Incredible. In incredible because then you're leading to saying, what are the obstructions? Is it environmental toxins? Is that the number one thing that's obstructing our communication systems? Yeah, I think it's definitely, you know, in your top two for sure. I think, you know, where the jury is out right now for me is, especially watching this recent pandemic and starting to come to terms with the effect of social stress and psychological stress mm -hmm. on biology, that may be just as potent as the chemical toxins wow. we're in. So you combine social isolation with chemical isolation, and I think we have the perfect storm, and we're going to see it. We have 8 million you know, new, Ameri new poverty families in America just over the last month because suddenly our, our paycheck protection program dried up and we spent the $2 trillion and all of that. Eight million people have tumbled into poverty over the last four weeks, and so there's there's this possibility that uh, we're, we're not possibility. There's a reality that we're dealing with now, and that's going to unfold in these coming weeks and months. Yeah. That we're going to see massive explosion of mental health crisis, and then chronic disease really stacks. And so, depression and mood disorder, sleep disorder, drop in sex drive, drop drop in sleep function, sector, sexual function. These things are the early phases of chronic disease and that disconnect between the cells. Then in the, in the next two years, we're going to see an explosion of fatty liver, obesity, and then the autoimmune stuff, another spike in thyroid, rheumatoid, all these autoimmune conditions that have become common, and then cancer five, seven, eight, ten years down the road mm -hmm. from the combination of chemical toxicity, which is what we've done even more so, right? We said there's this pandemic and there's this horrible virus out there. So we start spraying the air with with chemicals that are killing the microbiome and the virome. And, and so we're surrounding ourselves by more isolation, more toxicity, kill everything, wash everything, right? Wipe it down in alcohol, which I already told you at the very beginning is the very oldest toxin to tight junctions. Mm -hmm. You put that all over your skin, you just opened up your whole skin mm -hmm. to whatever, you know, virus is there, whatever bacteria is there. 
and whatever toxins are there. Think about you know wiping down your hands and face with, with alcohol, and then you put makeup on, there's 120 to toxins in your makeup that are disruptive to everything from the immune system, the endocrine system, to the cancer itself, just right in, because the alcohol opens up those tight junctions. Mm -hmm. Pollution comes in through your skin more rapidly. Take a shower, you're, you're showering in things like Roundup or glyphosate, you're showering in chlorine, you're sh showering in all this stuff that would right into the cells if you've gotten an alcohol exposure. So we keep doing the wrong thing because we have this old, old narrative that humans are against nature and nature is against humans and we have to kill it before we get killed. And it's that, that kind of manifest destiny or isolationist belief system that keeps us doing the wrong thing. Oh my God. Yeah. It was, it, what a way to think about our relationship with nature. You know, it was, um, I saw a sad guru. Do you know who sad guru is? He's no. a guru out of India. Um, really profound in his words and simplicity, but incredible. And he said, he started naming all of the animals and insects. If they die, how much time we would have left on earth. Yes. And then he talked about if we died, how earth would flourish. Yes. Isn't that incredible to think that we are so egocentric to think that nature revolves around us, right? But the power of nature over us as that being the macrocosm of everything, including our own health. That's right. Which is really what you were getting at. And you touched on something there that I think, you know, is important because, you know, as you're listening to this podcast, there's part of your brain saying like, why is this not the common narrative? Why aren't we hearing this on CNN? Why isn't this exactly. there? And then there's a tendency for us to become very prone to think that there's a conspiracy against us. Like, okay, mm -hmm. there must be a small group that's doing this. And wealth has that effect. Wealth is an isolation event. And the way in which we have created wealth, the way in which wealth is non-productive in and of itself, but it's used for power rather than the movement of energy. All of those flawed things, yes, wealth is a problem. Yes, it creates isolation. Yes, it creates the potential for a very few people to influence the many. But there's a deeper fundamental thing that I think, you know, is uncovering here, which is as humanity, we are creating that wealth in an unbalanced fashion through our own behavior. It's not something that's being inflicted on us, just like cancer is not being inflicted on us. It's coming from the failure at the tissue level. So in the same way, it's at the community level. There is no, you know, if there's a cabal, they're not very powerful because the power is within us as a community. Consumers are the biggest company that's ever been out there. So you look at the biggest ones you can think of, Amazon, Apple, whatever it is. And they have $600 billion in the bank, these massive things. It's like, well, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the $17 trillion that the, just the United States consumer wields. And so we are the biggest corporation. We are the largest, you know, I would say, purveyor and uh, steerage of of the entire global system. And so if there is a cabal, if there is, you know, whatever conspiracy mindset mm -hmm. you want to take on, it's a result of us. It's a result of our own behavior. And so if we're failing to create the power at the individual level, at the community level, then we can then we are prone to creating systems where a few will will control the many. Mm -hmm. That's from us though. And so if we take our energy and say we need to fight against them or we need to fight against that, we're pouring energy into the old structure and we're going to just strengthen the enemy, not, not solve for the problem. And I'm afraid we've done that with cancer. You know, here I, I used to develop chemotherapy and now I'm concerned about all those 20 years where I thought that I was joining a war on cancer. In my warrior mentality, I was just strengthening the energy around this broken system. 
and I was pouring, you know, helping pour billions of dollars of energy of research and knowledge and education around this war mentality. I, I really think we have to step away from the us and them phenomenon, the pro and anti thing. Are we pro-vaccine? Are we anti-vaccine? We need to just wrap that up and say, wow, super old concept. Like, mm-hmm. that's all thinking that humans are somehow, you know, in isolation from their nature. Mm-hmm. We just need to set that argument down for a moment and say, what is the future we want right now? Oh, we want a future where our children are connected to healthy food systems and have most of their education outdoors and have most of their education in, in a connected, vibrant community that's multi-generational rather than just all the fifth yes. graders together, you know? What do we start to look like? What if we put our our tenth graders in charge of third grade education, and those tenth graders all had to be instructors in third grade classrooms? You know, mm. what if we gave that kind of responsibility to our children to teach the next generation what they're seeing and what are the patterns they're seeing in nature and their passions that are emerging? And and so we need to rethink the whole thing. This isolationism of a kindergarten class is just as dangerous as an isolation of a cardiology class. You've broken that down into a very small subset of people that are going to think very much alike and be trained to think even more alike and not see the, the forest for the trees. Mm. And so I don't think medical school is the problem in the education system. It begins very early in life where we're breaking down multi-generational and perhaps more importantly, experiential forms of education. Yeah, beautiful. And And many people would be like, that sounds like we evolved from that. It's so funny now to think that quote-unquote de-evolving would be the answer to our overall health and really just humanity in the in our future, right? The, the connection and systems between all of us need to be reinforced rather than, you know, systemically just broken down into like little reductionist pieces. Um, even just learning how to be together, work together would have massive changes for our future if we do that as kids, right? It'd be amazing and, and be empowered, I think, at the individual level to to give credence and importance to our capacity for observation. Mm-hmm. We are not taught to observe nature. We're mm-hmm. not actually, actually taught to observe anything. We're taught to memorize stuff. Mm-hmm. And from a very early age, that becomes the paradigm where you're going to memorize American history instead of going to sit on a reservation with First Nations people yeah. and hear where they come from, where is, what is the, the myths and the wisdoms that they, they, they created their you know, worldview out of? How does that inform modern you know, society, how does it inform modern technology uh, with those ancient wisdoms that, that predated the uh, you know, arrival of uh, American Western civilization as, as a whole? We tend to teach Western civilization as a march of technology. Yeah. We lose the whole humanitarian history of it. We had indi- connected, I think, in, indigenous wisdom is misunderstood. Indigenous wisdom makes it sound like it's some sort of old version of wisdom. Right. I would say it's connected wisdom. You know, the most so connected. Connected yeah. wisdom where where those First Nations people or you go to any any nation, anywhere, any piece of earth on the globe, the people that inhabited that for hundreds of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, not 4,000 years since Rome or, or from ancient Egypt, we're talking hundreds of thousands of years of people that just sat and observed nature. And they learn something from that. Mm-hmm. And they, and then in a short period of time, we've erased that memory. And we've wiped out 97% of those indigenous, you know, connected peoples over just the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. And so 97% genocide of that, that connected intelligence, that connected awareness of what humanity is and should be and where it's going. There's 3% left. What are we going to do with the 3%? 
we need to rush out and as a communities figure out how to support every reservation mm-hmm. and say we need to dissolve this concept of a reservation we need to dissolve those walls we need to welcome you all into every every single kindergarten course should begin with and uh, listening to the chant of a, a local mm-hmm. tribe mm-hmm. listen to the intelligence within the vibration of the sound that was set up tens of thousands of years ago in, the, in those voices and taught from generation after generation after generation to create this vibration. Mm-hmm. And we know that, interestingly, all spiritual song, chant, meditation is one of the few things that turns on telomerase, which is the thing that regenerates the, the ends of our genes. Just song and chant. Song, chant, Incredible. and dance. Wow. And so those three things turn on telomerase better than any drug that's ever been discovered or anything else. And so there's a fundamental knowledge that the communication network that we were talking about earlier, this wireless communication network and the wired communication of light energy was already understood in the at Fireside in Africa, in the Aboriginal environments mm-hmm. of, of Australia. You go back those tens of thousands of years and they understood that the light energy coming out of that fire or coming from the Milky Way above or coming from the, the midday sun, the vibration of light could come into the body and inform the song, inform the dance. If, if I can find anything that humans have created that hasn't done any harm, then the list is short. And I think song is one of the few. Our ability to create music and dance to it is the only thing that I can really say with great confidence has done no harm and has probably heightened the intelligence of nature. Mm-hmm. If there's anything that we've done to participate in the co-creative intelligence of the planet, it's that. And that's... That's very fascinating for me. And so I would invite each of you listening to really think about if any of this feels like conviction, if any of this feels like truth in your life that we've talked about in the last half hour, start to think about how you're going to start to pattern your life to, if, if nothing else, bring song, dance, spiritual chant, meditation, prayer into your life today mm-hmm. and start that space. If it's just five minutes singing at the windshield on your way to work, do that. Mm-hmm. But at some point in the day, make it a priority, create vibration with your voice, with an instrument, with the, your feet on the ground, yes. and then sit by a fire. And it can be as simple as a candle. Turn off all the lights at night for just a moment and make the family sit around a few candles and you're going to be amazed at the conversations that emerge differently from a candlelight or from the firelight than would emerge from sitting in front of Netflix together or YouTube or whatever it is. We have dumbed down the hyperintelligence of connection by disconnecting each other from our immediate environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love those actionable ideas right there. Because we can all do that. How easy, how cheap it is to sing, to dance, to put on a candle, to sit with your loved ones. That's that's free and easy. And will enrich you in ways you don't expect, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. And so when we think about how, what is the economy that we want, if, if this one's collapsing, and it's fundamentally collapsing. You know, you look at the Federal Reserve, yeah. and it's ridiculous, you know, hoops that it's jumping through and creating endlessly to kind of kick the can down the road. Like we are at the end of the American empire. We are at the end of the U S dollar as the reserve currency of the world. We're, we're fundamentally at the end of our empire. And so in the collapse of that economic powerhouse, what is the new economy? And in our, in our program, we're launching in January, actually, and we're a whole learning system around regenerative systems uh, with 
you know, not just farmers, but land management, lawyers, legislators can start taking this coursework from a really cool, you know, cadre of, of faculty. And one of our, our first faculty members is Mark Anielski, who's written the book um, that is called uh, The Economics of Happiness. And he's worked for years to work with governments and indigenous peoples and all of this to help them understand that their original currency was that of wellness and happiness. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Mark's concepts and his coursework and the models that he's created help give us metrics for happiness. And so his measure of a successful economy can be mapped by just these short little uh, questionnaires that happen after every human interaction. And it basically measures how much joy and how much sense of connectivity do you have after that interaction with that other person. Mm. And so it's a different way of measuring the value between. And so you and I could measure the, our success together as humans if we walk out of this room in a few minutes feeling a, a deeper sense of conviction that there is a bright future, that there is a future that we could co-create, that mm. there is a future that's already arriving uh, in our subconscious perhaps yet. But it's arriving and we can participate in that together and we can love deeper yeah. and we can connect harder. That's, that's health right there, and it's wealth. And so that's the new economy, I think, is understanding not just biology, but new currency systems, new macroeconomics, new sociopolitical systems that come down to that, that understanding that the highest degree of human wealth and value is in heightening each other's experience of wellness. Incredible. And I'm, I, I'm here for it. Let's hope that it's in my lifetime. I'm ready to see something shake up because look where we are. Right, look, look, you just feel uh, as if you shook a bottle of kombucha and you're ready to open it, and the fizzing is just popping up. Something's gonna happen, but I feel it collapsing. I do, I do. It's pretty incredible. But um, the way you said it was so eloquent, so articulate. Like it's just, it's beautiful to think that. And what was the name of that book? Uh, the Economics of Happiness, and then okay. the sec second book is uh, Wellness Economics. I think so. Uh, they look at kind of two different sides of the equation, uh, kind of the micro level and the macro level of, of what those look like. Mm -hmm. But the idea of starting with farmers, you know, and I had this real honor of sitting with Dolores Huerta uh, last year. We were in a salon together, just kind of a, a, a roundtable discussion group in Southern California. And I didn't know much about her history. I'm humbled and, and embarrassed to say that because I was actually a Chicano study major and a Spanish major at the University of Colorado, and I was Chicano theater, and I did all this Chicano street theater stuff that was around Che Guevara and all this. Mm -hmm. I had never learned about Dolores Huerta, and she was really the right hand of, of that entire movement, of the Chicano farm movement. And she said something just extraordinary to my wife and I after the event. We were sitting on the floor in front of her, and she's in her 80s, and she's among one of the most decorated civil rights people in history. She's been invited to the White House every president since Eisenhower. And so um, she's just one of these extraordinary human beings that continues in her 80s to be more coherent and see more clearly what we've created and what we need to change. And in sitting with her, she was listening to what we were up to with our Farmer's Footprint, which was a nonprofit and all this. And she said, well, I don't understand everything because we were talking about software and, you know, IT technology around cyber currencies and mm -hmm. macroeconomics. And she said, but it sounds like you're on the right track because we have, I've never seen a successful revolution that didn't begin with the farmers. Mm. And I thought that was just such a beautiful way for us to reorient as communities to say, what is the revolution for the, for the near future? And when I say revolution, I'm not talking about, we know, you know, ideally we'd create a revolution that doesn't include guns and shooting each other. 
but we've shot each other over much less than what's going on right now, right? You know, mm -hmm. and so the, this, the, it's important for us to recognize that the tenor of discord, the tenor and volume of, you know, extreme violence that's pent up within our system is higher perhaps than it's ever been in our union. We've fought civil wars. We've done these horrific you know, world wars. We're back at one of those moments where there's just so much, you know, pent up human anxiety, frustration, yeah. paranoia, and we have more people than have ever existed on earth. And so at 7.8 billion people with that kind of tension built up, that, that's the fizz you were talking about within the kombucha bottle. We have a cast that's ready to blow. My hope is that we can show a pathway for release of that tension yeah. before it turns into a World War III. And the tension release could be one through of rebirth of local economics, local systems of communication, local systems of governance. And if we start that with the understanding that the most important piece of value for a community is in its food system and its farmers, it would be a very peaceful revolution. And we could go from a sense of vulnerability and not enough safety network from the federal government, not enough Medicaid, not enough Medicare. We need, you know, all this talk about we need a, a single payer system or we need government health care. We already have government health care. So it hasn't helped. It's never improved the health of people. You know? yeah. and disease management never improves health. And so no matter how we cut that thing, we're just kicking the can down the road. We're missing the forest for the trees. But if we were to do community correctly and empower that community with an economic understanding that joy and wellness was the, the first metric of economic success, then our children in 20, 40, 50, 60 years are going to be more resilient and have less disease than ever before, therefore be more creative and more productive than any generation before them. We're not thinking that way yet, but we could very quickly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> too big of a way to think right now, too, too forward thinking for many of us, but you're right. Like just putting these words out, educating we could very quickly, as oh, you said. Oh, it's so fun. It's it, and again, it's, it comes back to that farm that can heal in an instant. You yeah. Know? And so, or the human body that can logarithmic suddenly, healing. Logarithmic healing. We could do that at the community level. Yeah. You know, and I think this, you know, one of the important shifts that we need to make, and and this may be going down to a rabbit hole we didn't intend to go down, might confuse us all, but. I want to bring it to a moment of this whole Black Lives Matter and just the the social and civil rights unrest that we've seen unfold mm -hmm. in recent mm -hmm. months and recognize that things have changed. If you look back at you know Los Angeles with the riots in the early 90s and everything else, similar stories, similar narratives, similar triggers, but our, our global response was much different. Our global awareness was much different this time and certainly social media influence and all this stuff. But I have a concern of the way where it felt like a movement for a few minutes, and then it broke down into a fractured, very dissenting, very, you know, I would say polarizing, you know, effect in the community at large within weeks, if not months of, you know, its, its origin. And I think the reason for that is we keep expecting change to come through an ethical argument. And I want to point out for a moment the difference between ethics and integrity. The, an ethic of any sort requires a human perspective on it. And so me, as a human, is going to look at society at large and make an ethical model and an ethical judgment on an event. The likelihood of bias being baked into an ethical decision or an ethical model is 100%. It has to be baked in because by the definition really of ethics, it's the perception of a problem and a model and solutioning to it. Integrity doesn't have a perspective, right? A cell in a high state of integrity heals all the time. 
a cell that's becoming isolated and disconnected and therefore starts to, to develop an ethical rather than integrity decision, its ethics shift from coherent connection to the whole, making sure the whole organism is supported rather than itself. If, if it becomes too damaged to help participate, then it should eliminate itself through apoptosis or cell suicide and call on a stem cell to replace it. So it's an altruistic state in a state of integrity. If it becomes isolated, then it starts to have to make a decision based on perspective of I am alone and therefore I need to act some way. And, and the ethics of an isolated cell, the, the highest priority becomes survival because it's so damaged. It cannot repair itself because it's so isolated from its environment. And in its failure to repair, the last ethical decision is I just need to proliferate. And so it just starts reproducing very fast, you know, defies all of its regulatory, you know, events around reproductivity and all, you know, rate of metabolic demand in that and it becomes a tumor. It becomes a cancer. That's a cell moving from a state of integrity where the, the whole is more important than the individual. And it's only that, that way because the individual understands its importance. Mm -hmm. it, it understands that its, it, its survival or its decisions around its survival are just as important to the survival of the 70 trillion cells as any other cell. Any cell can become a cancer cell. Mm -hmm. Any cell can also trigger a response of repair and call in help for neighbors and send resources to neighbors through their fiber optic systems. Any cell can heal the community. Any cell can kill the community. That's how important the individual is. And so there's integrity at that level of connectedness. As soon as you become isolated and you start to make ethical rather than informed in state of integrity, I think you, you start to, to make mistakes. And so the ethics of Black Lives Matter is much different than the integrity of the statement. The integrity of the statement, Black Lives Matter, is irrefutable. And nobody would argue with it, I think. Where people start to argue is, well, what does that mean for society? What does that mean for this? You know, what is, what is, what do white lives matter? You know, there's mm -hmm. all these you know, silly things that then pop up because now everybody's got their perspective and they're no longer connected to the higher intelligence and you've mm -hmm. lost integrity and now you're in an ethical battle. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's a Marxist who developed that organization. You hear that or that's this. And right. So now it just moved from an important statement of integrity of lives matter to, well, you know, the, the wellness of the society depends on the police, depends on this, and, you know, mm -hmm. depends on the healthcare, chronic disease management system, you know, all of these systems. And so a great essay was written on this difference between integrity and ethics uh, back in the, the 80s. And uh, I, th I think it was Werner Erhardt, who's the head of Landmark, uh, who founded Landmark, which is an important, you know, kind of model of communication between businesses and peoples and societies and all this. And um, Werner Erhardt was just one of those, you know, brilliant minds of the 20th century that really saw things in a connected fashion rather than having to develop a perspective on political theory or a perspective on, you know, social and macroeconomics. Mm -hmm. He saw the, the system as an integral into integrity. You know, there was this integral integrity within everything. And I think Buckminster Fuller, another great example of an observant human being who could see the whole and saw a society built from a connected intelligence. Buckminster Fuller recognized that nobody should work for anybody. That's a ludicrous model in his, in his realization. He's like, we should all be bringing so much value to the human-human interaction that we would be rewarded just for showing up. Yeah. And we don't have to work for anybody. We're going to be compensated, and not just monetarily, compensated spiritually, emotionally, right. physically, and all the rest 
for that interaction of showing up on purpose and with the nuance of gifts that we bring each to, to an interaction. Mm-hmm. And Buckminster or Werner, you know, are paired then with Victor Schauberger, who in the mid-20th century, he was a forester in Austria. But interestingly, he was a fifth-generation forester in the same forest. So imagine a kid growing up in a forest that had been studied through the whole lifetime of his father and grandfather mm-hmm. and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather and on down five generations imagine that collective intelligence of observation. And he, as a forester, made more profound discoveries and observations about the cardiovascular mechanics of biology than any physician of the 20th century. And so that's where I I get excited about the idea of kindergarten classes happening in nature, which is, whoa, our kids could get really smart. Our kids could really see the, the opportunity for biomimicry in our technology. What if cell phone systems didn't rely on, you know, radiation signals through the air, but instead were able to communicate through the, the wireless or wired communication on mycelium God, underground? I was just thinking that, know? yeah. So what if the fungi were our Amazing. network? Amazing. And, and, and the kids could understand how those networks are built. Mm-hmm. What if they also understood that fungi are capable of making big three-dimensional structures through hyphae and pseudo-hyphae and all of this, and they could build skyscrapers out of it? You know, what if the fungi became part of our building construction thought process? So this is where, you know, a Victor Schauberger becomes this hyperintelligence as an individual in nature, consumed by it, fascinated by it. He makes incredible observations about spirituality, about what life means, what death means, because he was observing animals in nature and their continuum of life that goes beyond the boundaries of what we would call death. Mm-hmm. What if we all had a Victor Schauberger education? And what kind of hyperintelligence would we gain? Because that was one man in isolation uh, observing all of that and, and coming up with all that. I think if you took 24 students in a single kindergarten class, they could change the world if they really had the opportunity for a fully connected, experiential, and uh, integrity state with nature. Education. And, and saw that. Yeah, unfold. and observing it and seeing it. It's, it's so beautiful to even think about. I don't even have kids, but I know where my kids are going to be now after this conversation. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. I saw this um, documentary on Netflix called My Octopus Teacher. Have you heard of that? So good. You it's saw beautiful. it. Did you see how after a year, the man completely understood the whole ecosystem of the underwater kelp forest. I really think that was the most beautiful part is that last you know, three minutes of the film or whatever. And I don't want to g- give that away. Mm-hmm. You know, it's exactly what they say, but it is one of the most beautiful lines I've seen. And I think it definitely speaks to exactly what we're saying. Which I was is, just thinking about that because yeah. I just saw it, how yeah. perfect that is. Perfect example of studying the microcosm at long enough. And in, in that case, the octopus being the microcosm you suddenly get this hyper-intelligence about the whole system. And you start to understand that the whole thing functions with that kind of intention, you know, specific biologic response. And, Mm -hmm. and, I mean, the octopus is the best example of a connected cell in that it's able to become anything it needs to become. Right, right. And so what you get to see in that film is an octopus move from what looks like a rock to a giant piece of coral to sand to, you know, Mm -hmm. it just morphs instantaneously before your eyes. So fast. It's what cells are capable of doing. That octopus is showing you that the cells on its surface can instantaneously change to the light refraction of its environment, to the colors of its system, and all Mm -hmm. of this can be changed in an instant if it's fully connected to its environment. And so the octopus, I think, which you could argue, is the closest we come to the microbiome in a macro system or in a macrobiology. Incredible. It is that responsive, and it has that level of capacity for transformation. And as humans, 
we are rewarded again and again for not being transformational. Yeah, exactly. Doing the same thing over and over again and then scaling the same thing over and over again is yeah. what's been rewarded through our current economic system. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful conversation. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention anything about Ion Biome. Mm. Yep. So Ion has uh, been an interesting eight years of my life. Um, so in the understanding of biophotonics between sun, plant, and soil, uh, we were studying uh, nutrition in a different way. I, I left academia in 2010, all my cancer research, to start a nutrition center for reversing chronic disease. And a couple years into that process was realizing the food wasn't acting like it had or wasn't functioning as well as it had in all of the work out of Dr. Campbell's work out of Cornell mm. and you know, Esselstyn out of Cleveland Clinic. You know, 1970s and 80s was an explosion of knowledge of plant medicine. Like we realized we could reverse all chronic disease through plants in those couple decades. And it was being demonstrated, you know, over and over again, the efficacy of plants. So I was applying that science to my patients in 2010 and not seeing the same result. A few of them would respond as expected, but if a significant minority were not responding correctly, and that it might be 30 or 40% of the clinic was getting worse on health food. They were actually better on a refined, crappy, you know, processed food diet than they were on kale. And so as we started diving in, like, what's, what's the, with kale, we started to realize there's been a disruption between sun, soil, and, and, and plant systems, and therefore a disruption between food, the soil of our gut, and the cells that would feed off of it. Something had broken down in there, and it came down to these small carbon molecules that the bacteria make. And it turns out those uh, were our first glimpse of this wireless communication network that we were mm -hmm. turning, talking about earlier. And so the redox chemistry is a description of the exchange of electrons over over distance. And so kind of like dominoes falling, a small domino can create an effect you know, way across the table there because there's many dominoes in, in line. Redox chemicals are like the dominoes. And so one little action or reaction by a cell can be transmitted a long distance if you have enough redox chemistry. Mm -hmm. And so it's the wireless network that, that exchanges electrons or propulses energy and information out across cell systems to coordinate the body. And when we found these molecules made by bacteria and fungi, I immediately realized that they were so much different than that that was being created by the mitochondria that I had studied in my cancer research. The mitochondria can only really create information inside the cell because it's such an ethereal molecule. The molecules of redox chemistry are oxygen-based coming out of those mitochondria, mm -hmm. and they disappear within a millionth of a second. So these are very short-lived dominoes. In this carbon network that we were seeing outside of the cell, made by bacteria and fungi in our gut or in the soil systems, they were carbon chains. Instead of oxygen-based, they were carbon-based. And so we started extracting those carbon-based communication networks out of fossil soils with the understanding we need to go back before the last great extinction, which was 55 million years ago. So we're going to fossil ore, fossil soil systems of 60 million years ago and extracting the carbon intelligence from those systems. And so we had the very first, you know, sterile, not probiotic, not prebiotic uh, kind of concept. And so instead of trying to go after the bacteria, we were trying to go after their wireless network. Mm. And so that's what we isolated in 2013. And it would become, you know, a supplement uh, base for initially the gut. But now we have sinus and we have skin product coming out shortly and all this like all of these micro ecosystems are able to create communication. And when you have unfettered access to communication, you get the in, intrinsic capacity to heal. Mm -hmm. The supplement doesn't do anything to the human cells. And we really intention that just like the wireless, you know, cell phone towers never made a phone call. Yeah. You don't want the supplement to make a phone call. You don't want the supplement to tell the human cell to do anything. You want the supplement to come present to the signal coming out of the cell phone and transmit it mm -hmm. across distance. Mm -hmm. 
and in a, in a, in an audience or or public that has been denuded of the bacteria through antibiotics from our doctors, through antibiotics in our food system, through herbicides that function as antibiotics in our plant systems and water systems and all of this, we have become very limited in our ability to make the wireless communication network. And so when you give this back to a human, it's so exciting on one level of like, here's your foundation for communication. Let's see what you're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. When you put a bottle of ion in somebody's hands, you're literally saying, let's reveal you. Yeah. Let's reveal who you really are supposed to be right now. And it can be kind of intense to reconnect. And so for our most sensitive and most, you know, challenged population, we only need a couple drops under the tongue to start this process, yeah. to start them reconnecting. But then as they get, you know, more and more resilient, or if you're a healthy individual and you feel like you're pretty good, but you want to, you know, test your, your true connective capacity, you can pretty much jump right in at the, the more robust usage of like a teaspoon or a tablespoon a few times a day and see what happens over a few months' time as you get connected. And what happens is you age slower because aging is a result of a failure of redox chemistry. And so that can be subtle because what does it feel like to, to not age? It feels like yesterday. Yeah. And so <laughs> a lot of people get on the ion products and like, well, the science is mind-blowing. You guys keep proving it works in all these different cell systems and across all these different species and all that, but I don't feel much. And like, perfect, that's that's right. You, you feel like feel, yesterday. You should feel like yesterday, yeah. and then in three to six months, you should start to feel like last year. Yeah. And in, in, in you know, 18 months seems to be the real, six months to 18 months is where the magic really starts to happen because now you're starting to go back decades. And so, you know, today I am healthier at my skin. I'm healthier at my gut. I'm healthier in my muscle recovery. I'm healthier in my exercise capacity than I was when I was 28. Hmm. I'm only 29 right now. But <laughs> I like to think that. And my kids now, you know, in their 20s, I'm watching them having grown up on, on this product, really, and I'm fascinated by it. Now, what if our kids, you know, by the time they're, you know, going into puberty are already supported by a microbiome? What if our kids in utero are already supported, hmm. supported by a communication network of a microbiome? That's exciting. But there's even a trippier version, and this gets really kind of far out. But humans only showed up 200,000 years ago. The soil is 60 million years old. It turns out that mammals as a whole have never seen this level of soil intelligence. And so I get goosebumps every time I hand somebody a bottle of iron because we're not asking what is the potential of humanity. We're actually asking what is the potential of life mm. because the last great extinction took out the topsoil. It destroyed the topsoil through an asteroid that hit the earth and layered the topsoil in, in dust and it choked out the topsoil. We lost that aerobic metabolism of the planet and we lost 87 to 90% of life on earth. And so that last great extinction marked an injury to earth that we haven't recovered from yet. As individuals, you grab a bottle of ion, you start to introduce the intelligence of 60 million years ago. I hope that the result is not just healthy humans. Because if we just create more healthy humans that consume in the same way today, we just create our, the extinction of the planet faster. We need humans that are so connected to themselves, so connected to an ancient truth about the emergence of biology on the earth, that we stop the great extinction that we've currently engineered, and we become part of the solution. We reintegrate into the soil. We reintegrate our communities. We stop loneliness at the macro level to stop the loneliness at the micro level to begin a reconnection into Mother Nature to create the future that we all want. Beautiful. Beautifully said. I have my bottle at home. We can all get it on your website, right? Yeah. Literally, literally ancient wisdom for millions of years in a bottle. Pre-human wisdom. Pre-human wisdom. 
that I have <laughs> in my house right now. Goosebumpy. I need to put it on a pedestal and not on my <laughs> supplement drawer. I love to hear that, man. Thank you so much. I know you're a busy guy. We took so much time talking, but um, they say when you're in a, a state of hyperpresence, you don't really follow time. I have no idea how long this interview was, <laughs> but I appreciate you putting me into that state of hyperpresence, man. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate being here and thank you to everybody in the audience. It's just an honor to be with all of you. And um, I'm amazed by the power of community and recognize that you guys were all present in this conversation too. And it wouldn't have been the same without you. Beautiful. And you have a website we could find you? Zach Bush, MD. Very com. easy. Very easy. Same thing on Instagram, right? Yeah, that's it. Beautiful. Thank you so much for the I appreciate combo. having me, Doc. All right. I really hope that was something for you. Uh, I hope you felt it. I hope you're really inspired to connect more to yourself, to your cellular health, to nature, to each other. Um, health is so much bigger than what we think, uh, than what medical school has taught us, what your doctor has taught you, what the paradigm has taught you. Uh, we are much more than that. It's not reductionist. We are globally, globally connected to each other and our health depends on it. So really thank you for joining the show, listening attentively with so much, uh, passion. I love you all. Thank you so much for joining, rating, reviewing, subscribing, and really pushing the show to what it is. It's because of you all. Thank you. Thank you.